racers do you have? Um, so we just have three and a 260 mile race. Holy and crap. Four and a hundred miler and then like 10 in a 50K because I'm like capping things really small to keep it safe. And your, um, these races that you're directing, um, you race these or you direct these and you race other types of races? Um, so I do, I can't run my own races. It'd probably be a conflict of interest, but oh, I, good point. I, run, I either run the courses or part of the courses and, you know, hike the rest. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I do that still. I still do the same kind That's of That's awesome. I was looking at your, um, I was so curious about how your pregnancy has been going because I feel like there's just so many, um, mixed, depending who you talk to, whether it's, uh, like you'd never hear the same anything from anyone. And it almost seems like almost always you just hear negative stuff. So I feel like it's really hard. So I wanted to hear, um, cause I was reading up on your blog and, uh, you're at 26 weeks now or. Oh gosh, I think I'm almost at, let's see, let's check my little app on my phone. <laughs> Is that terrible? I, I feel like the weeks are starting to fade together. They're going really quick. <laughs> So yeah, I'll be 27 weeks tomorrow. So yeah. I always just said I'm however many months because I could never keep the weeks straight. And everyone was like, you don't know how many weeks. And I'm like, it's you like, it's really like, it's just months. It's nine months or, you know, nine and a half months or whatever it is. Right. They must. Yeah. yeah. Telling people, I'm like, I'm almost the seven months, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you end up deciding your, and obviously I don't know if this is creepy or not that, I mean, you know, that you post in a blog, so people are going to read it. Um, but for people just to know, you know, you're going to go with a midwife and you have crazy experiences with doctors. And, um, I thought it was so interesting how you, uh, and I absolutely agree because when, my little one is eight months old, eight months old. And it was such a weird experience going through, um, an OB rather than a midwife. And now that I have gone through it, I'll definitely do a midwife next time. But um, how did you decide what's all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I my degree is in natural medicine. So I have a PhD in you know natural medicine. But for me, going to a midwife wasn't like a for sure thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think I come from my mom was a nurse for 40 years. Wow. I have a lot of friends in the medical field to more traditional medicine. And so I have a huge respect for that. Um, but for me, I wanted like my ideal situation, non COVID would be a hospital birth with an OB that I trust that I know for sure would be there and able to try to have a natural birth. And, you know, like, maybe have like a hospital that had like, you know, a water birth as an option or right. was willing to like not disturb. And unfortunately that's just not the case here. So for me, I started looking for alternative routes. I talked to a ton of midwives and doulas and I was really particular. And I think that's important because I think it's a hard thing to filter through. And I think, I found it really interesting that even though my degree was in natural medicine, I was asking all of these midwives as I'm interviewing them questions I'd never asked my OB. I just assumed he had the experience or the education or the 
because of his title. And I realized I'm asking these midwives questions. I haven't asked my OB. So I went back and I asked him some of these questions and the more I asked him, the more I realized, even though I really adore him as a person, it, it wasn't a good match for me. Um, he hasn't had extensive experience. He's really young, which I like, and he's very open to me doing things. He's like pro me. I run at elevation a lot. I run high mileage. I do a lot of really things that maybe get shunned by a lot of OBs. Mm-hmm. He's been really supportive and I really value that. But he still was like checking for C-section and telling me as soon as I got to the hospital, he works with four other practitioners. He's a teaching um, doctor. So these professors, uh, OBs could, you know, it's a, a one in five chance of him being the doctor that would deliver my baby. And I don't know the other four options. And weirdly, I like him. Normally, I would prefer a female doctor, but I like him. And I don't know the four female doctors he works with. And so... I didn't want to just roll the dice. Right. And, um, then with COVID, it made it even more complex because now my partner to even join me in the hospital would have to get a negative test. And I have friends that work in that ER, the, you know, of the hospital that's closest to us. And it could be six to eight hours even for the rapid test to be returned. So I could be, essentially, I could, in theory, go in and deliver completely alone. Right. Um, And I didn't want to put myself in a position where I was obviously going to feel stressed and emotional and have a lot going on in a position that I felt like I had to defend for myself Mm -hmm. Um, because I have learned, you know, over my experience, I've had like a knee surgery and, um, you know, a few things in life, nothing crazy, but um, I've learned that you kind of have to be your own advocate if you know how you want to be treated in a medical community, Mm -hmm. um, which isn't always the best about the medical community, but I didn't want to have to feel like I had to be my own advocate. And so it wasn't like I could instantly have my partner in there or instantly, you know, if I hired a doula or midwife, have them come in and be able to do that for me. And so I didn't want to put myself in a situation where I was fighting, um, you know, the medical system to get to have my situation comfortable. So yeah, I went through a ton of midwife uh, interviews and I found one that, she has like 33 years of experience. She's worked in the hospital. If everything, anything went wrong, I would go to. She worked there for several years. Um, she has a professionally civil relationship with my OB. Um, so I maintained him until I had gotten, um, because I am 33, so technically a little bit older. Um, it's crazy to think that, right? Right. They think over 30 is so insane, but I appreciate that. And so I did do the ultrasound and I know some people would, you know, be upset about that, but I did like the more in-depth ultrasound that showed that the baby's, you know, organs were all functioning. Um, And then, so once I know that he get a heart and a liver and kidneys and they're all functioning and they all look the right size, then I felt more comfortable um, doing the home birth because I have had, you know, friends and personal experiences with people that, you know, they had to give birth and it became an emergency situation where their child wouldn't have lived if it wasn't for modern medicine. So I wanted to make sure that everything was appearing really healthy before I made that commitment um, to switch. And so, yeah, I felt really good about it. I think, um, like you said, it's 
I put it out there on a blog, which was, I feel like kind of bold. A lot of people have not been super supportive. Really? It's shocking. Yeah. I think it's just, it's really controversial in America, which is interesting to me. Um, Statistically, a lot of European women do home births and it's not an abnormal thing. Excuse me. Um, So yeah, I, I was, I've learned more about like the, the yeah. practice of American birth and that we're essentially the lowest live birth rate for any country that we're lagging the- badly. Yeah. And so I looked into like Europe and it's really common there and all of those countries have higher statistic rates and I I've read a ton of books and I feel confident with my decision. So, you know, I'm also my, the fact that I'm confident with my decision, but I'm willing to, adjust if needed you know if things start to go wrong I'm not gonna try to be stubborn and be like no I'm staying here and um you how know. far are you from your the closest hospital <clears throat> so about 40 minutes which okay. is definitely what something to consider um my partner and I are still deciding if we would do it at our house or like somewhere closer but I'm pretty confident we're going to go with the home you know actually at home yeah the um it I mean it sounds like the woman that you end up choosing for your midwife she is you know it's it just feels it's like and I've interviewed different midwives and actually there's an episode that I would I would totally suggest you listen to after we're done I'll send you the link and she yeah. um she's a midwife she's been doing it forever and it was very very interesting to hear her statistics and and she's a doctor so she's all data driven and um she's in australia so it's a totally obviously different system and you've done research so you see how it is in europe and abroad and it was after speaking with her for an hour or an hour and a half i think we spoke it really solidified for me like just it's almost like and i get that you know um doctors and nurses and all these things they're there to help you But when it comes to birthing, this is what our bodies are made for, right? Like this is literally why we are here as females with our organs and everything. And it's so interesting how she, and she basically just said that they try to scare you into using, you know, the OB in that community because it's a money, it's a money funneling thing. And I mean, I think that sadly, a lot of things boil down to money, whether it's what's going on now in the world or whatever it is. Um, but it's was very, very interesting because, um, everything that she does is numbers and statistics. And it just shows like whether it's an induced labor or a natural birth. And basically there was something that she said that was so interesting. That was, um, if you have a C-section or an induced labor, um, Basically, the child isn't fully developed until you go into labor. So basically, when you have a scheduled delivery, unless you go into labor and you have the contractions and this type of stuff, you're not, the baby isn't actually developed. And it's really interesting to hear that because I've never, ever heard that. But it makes sense because it's like, okay, this is, okay, the baby's ready. It's telling you it's ready. You know, let's, let's go kind of thing. That was interesting too, because we have this hang up of like, you know, 40 weeks, but and 42 is really late and dangerous. But then I looked into like, um, ethnic and, um, genetic profiles and European descent women, which is primarily, at least according to ancestry.com, what my 
ethnicity is, is 41 and a half weeks. So technically I should be a week and a half late. Mm -hmm. And I know at that point, my OB would be like trying to push a induction, but genetically that's like the basic average. And so I think it's really funny that, you know, we try to rush this, you know, this thing, but children develop differently. Um, and we accept that when they go to school, you know, my partner's a teacher, we accept a kid that's seven inches taller than another and mm-hmm. one is really good at sports, but one's, you know, picking up math quicker. That's, that's a common sense acceptance of childhood development, but we expect babies to come out and just be this machine and, yeah. Oh no, it's this day. And we, we expect that all of their organs are going to have developed exactly as quick as the average mm-hmm. of, that doesn't isn't exactly how children work so. it's, I mean and it's so it's scary because um I had with mine um and my little one was uh, born in April so mid-April when COVID was on its first like in <clears throat> a week before it was actually the period where they were saying that my husband wouldn't be able to come to the hospital <clears throat> and so then that like that's when everything was kind of really just like, this is new, what's going on. <clears throat> so I looked into a home or a midwife or a, a water delivery, something that I could do outside of the hospital. It didn't end up working. And I ended up ha- meeting or having a delivery doctor I never met. <clears throat> um, it was a wa- I just feel like it was a wild experience, but the reality is, and I think that saying this will make you feel a little relief because literally I had, I think the worst case scenario, it's fine. Everything, (laughs) it's fine. Everything turns out as long as you're safe, the baby's healthy and it will be fine. Um, because like, I also end up doing exactly what you're saying you don't want to do, which is I had to push back on my doctor or the delivery delivery doctor who I didn't even know who he was. Um, because he wanted to schedule me to be delivered at 40 weeks. And my mom, my sister, everyone, my aunt, everyone around me, they always went to 42 or much later, um, and being like active and fit and young, you know, young, whatever. Um, they were like, there's no way you're going to give birth at 40 weeks, like when you're supposed to. So I ended up going to almost 42 weeks, but it was me pushing and fighting literally every other day I was calling the hospital to push off the induction. And I, I remember calling and telling my husband, like, I feel like such an asshole. I feel bad because I felt like the doctor and I were kind of pushing and shoving like back and forth of him saying, okay, well, you know, I don't have any more spots left this week for inductions and me saying, okay, well, I don't want to be induced. And so I would just keep pushing it as far as he'd let me. And then thankfully she ended up just coming by herself, but it was such a crazy experience of those stress hormones are the hormones that keep the baby, like keep you and keep her inside or him inside where the relaxed and the, you know, the chill hormones is what's going to help push the baby out. Great. That's so frustrating. That makes me so upset for you. Well, I mean, (laughs) thank you. But thankfully you already, you know, you, you dealt with that. You don't even have to deal with it and you'll be able to just do it on your own. Right. And yeah, it's, it's, I do think like I have a friend that has had two children um, and one of them had to have major heart surgery. That was a situation that, you know, it was amazing that she was in a hospital situation, obviously, um, because she didn't get the chance to have those scans. And, um, 
you know, she, she told me, I can't tell you who delivered either of my children. I have no idea their names, but I know everything about the doctor that did the heart surgery. Wow. And so I feel like that says a lot about like the resiliency of women because to her, the labor, the giving birth, the, you know, whatever occurred there wasn't really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the back end, I feel like she didn't get the experience that obviously she would have wanted. Um, so I do think like to have the midwife and do the home birth and do it or do it your way with, you know, the, there's always an ideal situation, mm-hmm. but I don't think, I really think it's important to tell people it's not selfish to try to have that ideal situation. It is an experience for the mom as much as it is for the baby. And hundred percent. obviously you want to control it and make it safe. And that was really important to me that my midwife was, um, you know, she was a certified nurse midwife as well. She comes with medical supplies. And so the safety aspect is super important, but on the same token, you can look up third world countries and they have higher live birth rates in the United States. So it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean anything is anything better. And the hospital that I specifically am closest to has a higher than our national average for C-section rates and a lower than a, or a higher than national average for mortality. So wow, that was another thing. If I happen to be really close, I know a friend had a baby in like Atlanta in a birthing center inside a hospital and had the dream experience she wanted, but that's not a, you know, a, fac- a facility that I have access right. to. Well, so I think know, it's really- go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think it's really important for moms to realize that it's not selfish to look into trying to have the experience they want, but also I think from my friends having good and bad births, um, I also am willing to be flexible where needed. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it's such a wild, um, the whole thing, it's just a wild experience. And I think, have you heard of, I'm sure you stumbled across it when you were doing research of the free births. Yes. So that's a huge thing now too. Like a lot of women are just doing it by themselves. But if you think about it, they do it. They're fine. The baby's fine. I mean, I have no idea what the statistics for that are, but it's, I'm like, it's, it's so simple. This is what our bodies are for. Like the statistics for it are really interesting. They're actually just as healthy, um, as most midwife births and the, um, the only problem I think is obviously if something goes wrong and I think that's a lot about maybe knowing yourself. Like for me, I'm, I'm someone who, and that's why I've always kind of been drawn to medical things is I'm someone who functions really well in emergency situations, probably to the point that I function better in emergency situations than I do in my day-to-day life. Um, I think that's when I think the most clearly, that's when I have the calmest, like I'm the person that if I see a car wreck, I'm not obviously excited, but you, you're focused. Help someone. I'm going to be the calmest, clearest person there, and I'm going to be able to think mm-hmm. the right thing to do or the best option. And so, I think that knowing that about yourself, or like for example, my partner is not somebody who likes the sight of blood, and so making sure that I had someone here that was fine with that um, was important to me because I wouldn't want to subject him to having that expectation then he would have a traumatizing situation. Um, Yeah. My husband is not anything like whether I came home one day, he was chopping dinner. I came home from work and he was sitting at the table like this. And I was like, babe, 
what do you, and he's like, I, I can't look. I can't. And I looked and he like, you know, chopped a huge piece of his, and it was, he was sitting there. There was just blood all over. And I was like, you couldn't, he's like, I just, I'm like, how long have you been sitting here? Crazy man. But yeah, same. He couldn't, even at the hospital, he was behind me the whole time. Not a chance he was going <laughs> to. Yeah. And I, I think that's important. It's like, since knowing yourself, mm -hmm. um, that said, if my partner was like somebody that was super into it, I think free birth is something that's interesting. Um, personally, I'm a little too medically drawn to want to go there just because I do know the statistics of if something happens, yeah. you know, how, how quickly that medical intervention can help, you know, a newborn. Mm -hmm. Um, if it were just an experience for myself, that's probably the route I would go, but I want to make sure it's an also a healthy experience for our son. So um, <laughs> I think it's really interesting. I've listened to a lot of, there's a podcast on it. I've listened to a lot. I know a girl that had a free birth. Um, wow. I think it's really interesting. Um, I'm supportive of women kind of taking birth back into their own hands. I, if you've read, there's a, there's so many good books and documentaries, but there's a book that was written. Uh, I think it's like the, removing the fear of birth or the childbirth without fear. That's what it is. Oh, I got to look into it. Childbirth without fear. Okay. It was written in the 1940s and it's really interesting. Just, I mean, um, structurally, like the language is a little old timey and all of that, but it's really interesting because I would never be interested in politics in the 1940s. But now I'm really fascinated because politics in the 1940s greatly affected why people are birthing the way they birth mm -hmm. and where money went and why it became such an industry. And then like you go into like the documentary, like the business of birth and you see why that's set up the way it is. And you know, why people are pushed inductions, especially around holiday times and before the weekend. And, you know, it's, it's not about the, in the hospital situation, most of the time it's not about the mother at all. It's mm -hmm. about getting the child out healthy, which is very important. But I think it should be equal parts, an experience for the mother that isn't pushing her or potentially putting her in more harm and more pain. Um, like you said, like with the stress hormones, if you're stressed and scared and panicked and feeling rushed, your, your body's not going to give birth because your body's going to hold on to the baby because it knows for sure the baby's safe inside of you. So. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's like so simple. Like it makes sense. But somehow it's almost like we've been, we have to some degree been tricked. I mean, in these, you know, if health or something, there's an issue or some sort of, you know, special scenario, that's a whole nother thing. But healthy, you know, mother aside, like the major, like I think, and I hope majority population who are having kids, it's like, it just shouldn't even be a thing. Like, I, th I just wish we could learn how to trust our bodies. So it's like, I was just speaking with a woman about this where it's like, we, we don't really know where or how to start on essentially educating women that we should be trusting our bodies and we should be taking care of them. And I think that this point goes to, um, something else that I read in your blog that I thought was so interesting because, um, about your weight gain and what the doctor said, how you were like, why would I even for one second, listen to what this dude is saying? And it's true because you know, you're healthy, you know, you're like it. And it gives me goosebumps because it makes me so like upset when 
people think they have an input. And I get he's a doctor. I get he's your OB or whoever it was. But it's like, you know your body. Right. And it's also like, I'm still mostly walking, but also running like 60 miles a week. Like that's more than the average American runner runs at their peak physical. And so it's like, my body's moving a lot. And I also know things about myself. Like I tend to retain a lot of water. So if I fly, I put on like eight pounds of water. Like that's just how my body functions. Like I normally will fluctuate five to eight pounds in a day. And so knowing that about myself and knowing that I'm still extremely active, probably more so than, you know, some people would even recommend, I'm not at all worried about my weight gain, but it was a little shocking that he essentially really like called me out about my weight gain. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm gaining weight. I'm excited. It's so cool to see my body doing what it needs to do. And, you know, am I super thrilled that my thighs are thicker than normal? I mean, no, to be honest, (laughs) but if where my body wants to put on some weight, then go for it. Like, this is a process. So yeah, it's a temporary thing. And I think that a lot of the times, whether on on either side of the spectrum, right? Like you're going to get people who say you're not gaining enough weight. You're going to get people who say you're gaining too much weight. You're going to, it's like, there's always both sides of the push pull. And for whatever reason, being pregnant, it's like, you're always stuck in the middle. Um, and it's funny too. Cause I remember when I was pregnant, I was like, you know, cause I'm, I like running, but I'm more into like lifting weights and like CrossFit and that type of stuff. So I remember like I had my tummy hanging out and I'm like doing double unders and box jumps and throwing the barbell around and people are like, are you serious? And I'm like, it's more detrimental for me to stop than it is to do. Like I've been doing this for years. Like, why do you think it's okay for you to give me your input? And I don't even know who you are. Like, I've gotten that a little too. It's just being out running or hiking or in the gym. I've noticed I've gotten some, some side looks and I've gotten some commentary and for the most part, it's been very positive. People just excited to see someone pregnant out moving. Yeah. It's but good. I, I have had some not so positive comments that just got, you know, it was on social media. They just got blocked and that was the end of that <laughs> conversation. Yeah. I think that that's, um, it's funny because I am typically someone who's like, okay, I'll just block you. I don't need to hear what you're saying. I don't need that energy. And someone else, some woman that I was speaking with recently on the episode, she was saying that, and I think that she's right, but maybe she has a lot more patience than I do on this, where she says, I think that people truly, especially moms, they, they want to just be a good mom. So when they see you doing something or they think that it might be harmful to the baby or you know, they're, it's new to them or whatever. They say something that kind of just, you know, gives you a little, and you're like, I'm not trying to hurt my baby. Like I'm just doing what I normally do and the baby will be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how it's, I guess, I guess it's such a long societal trend though, but I was going to say, I don't know how it's become so common for people to have input on other women's health and, um, you know, obviously, if you see a mom, you know, shooting tequila, maybe it's time. <laughs> to but, um, you know, women have had to move while pregnant since the beginning of time. Totally. You know, so it's to, to try to limit somebody because of their exercise. And 
it is disappointing. I've had this discussion with um, my friend Jen Shelton. She's a ultra runner as well, and she recently gave birth, maybe about a month ago, a little over. Mm-hmm. And um, we, she's luckily very educated and very intellectual, and we've talked about it a lot. How frustrating it is that there isn't a lot of studies, and I don't know if that's more because of like the morality of studying pregnant women or subjecting them to do things, but I wish there could be a study of that women opt in for that are choosing to be pregnant, Mm -hmm. that are choosing to do activities. Um, So kind of look at the health and the statistics because there aren't, there isn't a lot of data. I mean, 20, 25 years ago, we thought if women ran a marathon, their uterus would fall out. So, well, we didn't think that, but (laughs) science. It's crazy. So yeah, they, they, you know, they had women, just you know not that long ago became legally allowed to run marathons which is absurd so um you know it's 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 all really behind and there's there's so much that's been done to women that's scary and I don't I think unfortunately stepping back and having women be in charge of birthing and whether that means looking for a female doctor Mm -hmm. or female midwife it puts you back in a position of power a little bit and um that's frustrating because there might be really amazing male doctors out there, but unfortunately they're not going to be advocates for women um, socially, which I feel like it's so, you know, birth has become so socially and politically charged. Um, I think it's, it's kind of scary to think about like we have to look for female led um, birthing practitioners, but. Well, and if you think of now that I've actually never thought about it, but it's so uh, like you see male doctors, right? Like male doctors are a thing I've never heard of. And I've never seen a male midwife. Like right. it's essentially to some degree, it's a holistic approach to, and like, for example, my, um, you mentioned that, and I was going to say this, but I forgot I'm all over, um, your, the OB that you had, he had a high C-section, um, rate, right? The hospital that he practiced. Oh, that one in general. Okay. So when my, um, the guy who ended up being my delivery doctor, who wasn't my OB, and I didn't know that because my OB is a woman, I thought that the OB that I had was going to be my delivery doctor. And she only told me like maybe a week and a half before, which mind you, I went almost at 42 weeks. So it was right around my delivery date when she was figuring out when I like when I would go to the hospital and where I go and the whole how everything's set up because it was during COVID. Um, did she say, yeah, I'm not your delivery doctor. And I was like, what? Huh? She's like, yeah, it's either going to be this guy or this guy. And I just started laughing because I'm like. experience Totally different. Anyhow. Um, oh, so the guy who ended up doing my delivery And I need to ask because I actually just had a girlfriend who just so happened to have this same delivery doctor in all of New York City. Somehow she ended up having him also. But um, so he, I had an episiotomy. And I think that he just did it to every single patient. Like, I don't, I truly believe that he just, that's just what he did. Like, I don't. It's become standard practice. Um, Yeah, it's insane. Something I've read is there's like, it's like less than 10% within their first year of practicing OBGYN as OBGYNs, like do doctors 
be a natural birth. Like less than 10% of them have even seen a birth without, and you know, to him, he was probably trying to do what was easier. Hey, let's make more space for this baby to come out. Not thinking about how that could be traumatic for you. Not thinking about how that could be traumatic for you long-term, sexually, healing-wise, anything. He doesn't have to deal with it. So why does he care? Yeah. And that's, like, it's really interesting Then you start talking to, like, pelvic floor specialists. And all of the trauma that that does, depending on how good his stitching is and Mm -hmm. all of the things that you have to heal from. But it made it easier and the baby came out quicker. So That's it. And then he could just move on to the next patient. Simple. Yeah, that's so frustrating. It's crazy. It's um, so yeah. That reminds me. I need to reach out to my girlfriend who had him recently to see because I, tr- I firmly like I really believe that's just his thing. Um, so that's why it's very interesting that what you're saying, less than ten percent of doctor new doctors actually see just a natural birth. That's yeah, in the first year, and they might deliver. You know, they might be there for a hundred deliveries, but they'll see one. You know, and so I mean, to them, it's not. It's not so much a fault to the doctors, even you're looking at a, a system that medically has been designed to yeah. get women in and out and keep the beds full and bill their insurance the highest amount. And, you know, also semicolon, keep the baby as safe as possible and have the quickest possible delivery. Yeah. So I think that, that latter part is phenomenal. Um, but the, I, again, it's taking away the, the birthing experience for the woman and, well, you know, traumatically, a third person know a woman who, you know, like, I don't personally know her, but I know of her experience. And I'd obviously never, you know, say anything, but like, she had a very traumatic episiotomy stitching. Um, it's horrible. It's called, you know, as far as healing, it's been a year or two, she's, you know, unable to have sex. And there, there's all of these things that, that her doctor, I'm completely confident, didn't even think of, hey, there's a you know, whatever the percentage is, I don't want to, you know, say a percentage, but the 3% or 20% yeah. that this epidiosomy stitch isn't going to be, you know, beneficial. And so he didn't, he didn't think of that. He thought of in, out, get the baby out, get the mom out the door and, you know, it's a numbers game, you know? And so it's, it, it sounds, I think that, kind of comes with what I'm learning very quickly about motherhood is there's this like mom guilt and this your child should come before you um pressure that women have and while I do think it's very important to raise your child with their health and best interest in mind I think if you don't take care of yourself you can't take care of your child Um, and it's that simple and I think that process has to start when you're pregnant at least for me it is and some people may you know flash out and say I'm selfish, but well, it's your, it's your life. It's your body. It's your baby. And I mean, you're apps. I also agree. I think you're absolutely right. If, if you can't keep your tank full, how are you going to give? Like, it just makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So then I'm wondering about your, um, your racing stuff a little bit more about that. So how did you get into it? Um, tell me. So as far as doing the races, I found out about the sport of ultra running really, really young. Um, I've on and off been a part of running pretty much my whole life. I started running when I was like seven or eight. Um, are you so from Hawaii? Where are you from normal? Or no? So I was born in Virginia and nice. then I grew up mostly in New Mexico. Um, so I go was into 
ultra distance horse racing um, oh. from like six and seven on. And those two sports parallel. So ultra running was kind of stolen from the ultra distance horse racing. I never heard of that. The ultra distance. What is that? The horse racing? The all like 50 to 100 mile horse races or wow. like multi age races, like 50 miles a day for like a week. Um, so things like that. And so I was into that sport and I got to travel all over the country and all over the world as a child. I was extremely privileged growing up. Um, very well aware. (laughs) That's so cool though. That's like, obviously like I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So there was like equestrian 4-H and you know, all the, but I of like, you know, the barrels and all this stuff, but I never heard of the, what kind of horses do they use for that? So they use Arabian horses for the most part. Um, because they're bred to be able to like live in the desert and go long distances. Um, and they're a little bit smaller. So their demands nutritionally and for hydration are a little bit less. Um, and so, yeah, and so I grew up doing that, and I found out about the sport. I always joke, but the first, like, crush I might have had, you know, I was, like, seven or eight. He was, like, in his 30s. He's married, still married, amazing woman. But this, um, he was, like, a family friend, and I think he was just the first guy that my parents were friends with that I was, like, oh, he he's attractive. He's cool. He's not my dad, you know, and so – he would do both sports. And so he would run a hundred mile race and also do the same race on horseback. And so I just thought like, that's the coolest, like toughest thing a human could do. And <laughs> I started running. Um, and then I, my dad would tell me stories. He ran track in high school and had like a very rough, you know, coach. And so he would like tell me the horror and glory stories of his track days and I just always kind of, I guess, idealized running as this like masculine tough thing. And I was a very competitive girl. And so I always wanted to like be a better runner because I felt like that was like, weirdly, I guess it was like me reaching for my equality. Like if I could run tougher or faster than the boys, then I was better than them. And it was like, (laughs) so I always kind of measured my I guess my worth or my, my value through like being tougher or being stronger or being more competitive and um you know whole, I get that yeah a whole a whole psychology whole you could go down I guess <laughs> but, um, yeah and so I stuck with it I ran in high school I started to run in college and then got really into beer drinking um almost as competitively so I decided to focus on that um and then I I kind of always identified myself as like maybe not a runner but you know, I was a personal trainer after college. I worked at a gym. I'd run to work or run home. Um, you know, it was just kind of always a part of who I was, even though I didn't, you know, I never did a lot of races or identified myself, you know, as a runner competitively. Um, and then I had a knee surgery at 22. And the first thing the physical therapist told me is, well, you won't ever run or be athletic again. And so Thanks. true to my I'm very competitive and stubborn and I, you know, crutched my way out of there with some four letter words, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> I've done an ultra every year since. It's amazing. Like, and so like, even if they weren't like a race, it was like an ultra distance run. And at the time I was, most of my twenties, I was a bodybuilder um, and I was doing fitness competitions. And that was kind of my main source of income through being a trainer for them. But I would still like come in and do an ultra distance 
run without training and, you know, like not competitively, like just finish. But to me, it was always important to know that I could still move my body that far, Mm -hmm. even though. And then I kind of got to my end with bodybuilding. I I always wanted to have kids. I actually had tried for many years with an ex um, husband and it was unsuccessful. Now looking at it, I think like what a blessing, um, you know, we're, we're luckily able to maintain a civil relationship, but having kids for us would have been a horrible, horrible complication. Um, so it worked out. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I wasn't able to have kids because of the bodybuilding. Um, I, I never missed the period, but I recently read a study. Maybe some of your listeners might find interesting. Um, it was by one of the scientists, I think it's called Ava. There's like a, a fertility bracelet monitor. I've never tried it, but, um, one of the scientists on their team did a study on women who exercise more than five days a week and more than 30 minutes per time. And like 80% of the ones, like of all of the women that they studied, they always got their period. They never missed. Um, but 80% of those women who are exercising, I think it came out to like three and a half hours a week or more, 80% of them were ovulating. And so when my partner and I started trying again, I cut my running back significantly. I gained probably five pounds above my normal weight, maybe 10 pounds above my super fit weight. Mm -hmm. And um, I really let go of expectations of my body to perform like an athlete and just did very minimally to me. For me, it was a lot more than I think the average person works out. But for me, it was a drastic cutback. And, you know, then I got pregnant pretty quickly. So um, I found that study really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But like we, you know, already discussed, there's just not a whole lot of science out there for women who are athletes and fertility and pregnancy and what that should look like or how that can happen. Yeah, I really, um, I wish, I mean, obviously, because I'm all, like I just hit 31 and it's one of those things where I would have, I would love to participate and I I plan to hopefully have one more, maybe two more. Um, but I would love to be a part of those study groups because I do think that like, you know, I do think that exercise is so important, even when, especially when you're pregnant. Um, I just started reading this book. I, if you haven't, you should check it out. It's very interesting. It's by, um, a woman, Dr. Stacy Sims and it's called Roar. Yes. Have you read it or you've heard of it? I have and she's fabulous she's one of yeah she's one of the doctors I refer people to when I am talking about hormones with them and they kind of push back and I'm like okay well this is this is a book that explains why I'm going down this with you um yeah in much better terms than I than I explain yeah I love it I'm I I I was trying to explain to my husband the other day and I was like I'm definitely gonna have to read it like three more times but it is so, so good. Um, it just, it put, it makes everything make sense because being an athlete working out, you know, being doing rigorous exercises, you know, more than the normal, normal person, I guess. But it's just very interesting how our bodies are. And if you listen to it, it makes sense that, and I mean, thankfully, once you, you know, laid back a little bit, you were able to get pregnant, what sounds relatively easily. And I just, I feel like if you do take care of your body more than not, unless there's an infertility or sterile or some sort of issue like that, then I can, like, I just, 
I don't know. The book gives a lot of insight, basically. But it is frustrating to think like, and like this is. I'm obviously very glad that my ex and I didn't have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very. <laughs> it's very interesting to me that I went to several OBGYNs. I did go through IVF. I did go to fertility specialist. I went. I did do all the drugs before IVF, and not. And every time I talked to them, I was always very transparent. Like, hey, I was a bodybuilder. I had years of very low calorie and, mm-hmm. you know, very high intensity. And this is what I'm currently doing. And it would be 20 or 30 hours a week of running or cross-chaining or, like, this is a very high-volume lifestyle. And I would talk to them and not one of them said, hey, let's not do drugs. Let's just take three months of not doing that. Yeah. And at the you know I, I would have uh, again I'm glad like it worked out for me that it didn't happen but and you know it could have been something on his part as well but um or just the universe yeah I mean <laughs> hindsight you just but, but that said it's shocking to me that I went through that with multiple doctors multiple mm-hmm. fertility experts multiple in multiple countries like not just in the states and not one doctor said, Hey, let's, you're, you're, you're not missing your periods, but let's try backing off anyway. And they all just would jump straight to here, let's prescribe this drug or here, let's do this. And, you know, it didn't have to be that way for me to get pregnant. So what, uh, what made you kind of switch it up with this time around? So I did um, look into fertility drugs and my OBGYN because of my history when we were trying instantly was willing to prescribe me what I requested. So I did look at an estrogen blocker, which is supposed to kind of you block your estrogen for a few days at a certain time in your cycle to like then boost it so that you ovulate heavier. Mm-hmm. And I wrote me a six month prescription, told me do it for six months every month. And I just wasn't emotionally ready for that. I did it one month. I took a month off. I did it another month. And then I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I was maybe super nauseous. I was like vomiting. I was just emotionally tied to like trying to control the situation because I'd already been through that with another partner. And uh, my current partner was just like, I'd prefer you didn't do that to your body. If it happens, it happens. Um, But I think for him to watch me like try to, you know, control this, it so we decided to like just take the summer off and I actually ran a little bit more drank a lot more beer didn't you know like ate whatever I wanted and I got pregnant like just enjoyed right and so it's kind of ironic um I think that's probably said a lot is you know I got pregnant when I stopped trying to get pregnant (laughs) but um yeah it was it was interesting to me like having gone through that and I can't imagine for so many women out there, that is such a challenge. And I think it frustrates me that we don't talk about how athletic women might have those issues. It becomes this like shunned thing. And so I feel like that's a really isolating period for women who are trying to get pregnant and they aren't having success. Well, it's like, um, you know, we, when we're in school, we talk about how to not get pregnant and, birth control and, you know, you basically spend your whole life, you know, using some form of contraception. So condoms or pulling out, you know, whatever it is. And then one day you're just like, okay, well maybe we should try to get pregnant. And then only then do you realize, oh, actually I 
I can't get pregnant or, you know, whatever the issue is at hand, but it is a really crazy thing. Cause it's like, maybe they should teach the opposite or both. Um, because I was on birth control for half my life, literally half my life. And I never cycled it. I never got off it. I was always just on the same thing. So when I got off it, I like, I think got pretty lucky because everything always just was very boring in that segment for me. Like I always got my period. It was always, you know, basically Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's it. I never knock on wood had weird cramps. I never had emotional, like it was just like, I'm basically a boy basically is like, it was just so simple. I knew exactly. And I don't know why or what that came from. I just got super lucky, whether it's genetic or who knows. But um, I just feel like, especially having now spoken with so many women and knowing that there's such a huge issue when it comes to getting pregnant, it's like, it needs to start when we're younger because yeah. eventually it's just too late. Yeah. One of my friends is a chemist and he's worked for a lot of drug companies. And this is what popped in my head. Your experience with your birth control might have been because of so essentially there's like 10 different genetic profiles of people globally. And when drug companies create drugs, they pick their target audience and they create the drug to best perform for that genetic profile. Mm. So drugs aren't created equal for everyone. Advil will work differently for everyone. Right. And depending on where your genetic profile is, Advil is going to work best for you if you fit the target audience. That's so interesting. Varying degrees and receptiveness. So you might have just kind of rolled the dice and gotten lucky with your first birth control that it was the one that was matched for your ethnicity, race, background. Yeah. And wildly frustrating because that's something I don't think doctors are even educated on because if they were, they would say, hey, look, you're a, you know, Asian or you're this, mm -hmm. let's look, these six drugs are available, but these six drugs were designed for, you know, white people, but there's two drugs that are work better for Asian profiles. Let's start with these two and see if either of these two work for you. And it was something that was mind blowing to me. I didn't think of that. Obviously, drug, and that was part of the reason he got on the pharmaceutical side of being a chemist. Um, because he said it was frustrating. You could work 10 years and create an amazing drug, but if there wasn't enough of a market for it, it didn't matter how rare or how horrible the disease, mm -hmm. these wouldn't produce it. So you could have, there are cures for cancer out there, but they aren't monetarily advantageous enough to market or sell. It's so sad. That's insane. And you would like, it makes you wonder. I mean, I, I guess it goes to everything else. It's all about the money that it will draw in. If it's not drawing enough money, then they don't do it medicine business and i always say this and this is part of the reason i got my degree in natural medicine is the united states is one of the countries that cares the least it seems like about their population's well-being i think as a country we want people sick longer to collect more from them sadly and it's so true we don't want our population to be healthy if we did we would change our nutrition education if we don't want our population to be healthy, because if we did, we would have a banned chemical list like Europe does mm -hmm. for food substances. You know, Europe has thousands of chemicals banned from foods. The United States has like 40. Like, well, foods, makeup, all these different things that, you know, you're putting on your body or in your body very consistently. Eventually you're like, 
but those companies lobby and you look at you look at like even you know say breast cancer research look who's funding it the dairy industry mm-hmm. unfortunately the dairy industry is one of the greatest causes breast cancer rates are you know eightfold in countries have high dairy consumption because of all the chemicals they're giving these cattle that promote over estrogen production and so it's like you go down these rabbit holes but I don't want to like derail the whole podcast. Yeah, no, no. Also, these are all things that need to be talked about because for whatever reason, people just overlook it or, and you're absolutely right because it's, it is so sad when you watch any of these, um, you know, I can't even remember the names of them, but the different shows that come out of, um, this is so bad and this is so bad, but, and then it's sponsored by, you know, whatever meat company or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's just, it's all money and it's so, it's just disgusting. Yeah. And I, I always say that with science, like, um, if you want to learn something, look at who's funding it and then remember that you're reading it without slant. And that's a real bummer, but you know what, like, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist because I'm not, but it's just, people need to remember who funds things. And that unfortunately our government has varying degrees of interest in how healthy and happy its people are. It's last um, on a list. If it makes yeah, a list. I personally think so, but you know, no, it's true. I absolutely agree. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Um, and then you look at it from like a birth and a pregnancy perspective and you can't blame an OBGYN for trying to do what he was told was the right thing and the fastest thing to do, but you can, assert yourself and being learning to be an advocate, but obviously it's a very, you know, being pregnant itself is a very sensitive and emotional and potentially stressful time. So that's hard that now we're asking the average, the average layperson woman to step up and become a medical expert in a period of a few months. And well, and I think I that having you also are coming from a world of like health and wellness and fitness and this type of stuff. And it's like, you people are so under knowledge like they really just have no idea when it comes to things that are good for them or things that aren't good for them and it's like you know I was just speaking with someone else about this and it drives me bonkers when people are like oh well you know I'm pregnant so now I can just you know eat all the crap and do all the bad things and it's like well when you're pregnant you're creating a human so maybe you should think about that like yeah, it's, it's wild to me. Like I even asked, um, so like for example, they do like the diabetic testing, you know, the, see if you're, you know, have any yeah. diabetes issues while you're pregnant. And it's like the, my OBGYN would ask me to fast and then take in this like chemical dump of processed sugar to then test how my body responds. And is this you know, because asked, why? Cause your age, they make everyone do it at our hospital I never yeah and so they they normally it's like a standard procedure I get maybe it is an age thing but um to screen if you have you know pregnancy induced diabetes and so the idea of fasting and then drinking trash sugar just to test my body's response out well obviously my body's not going to respond great but you know I why would I do that in the first place and can you say no I obviously did and I asked my I asked my midwife about it and she said that she will ask her clients to do it but they would do it with like a green juice that has the sugar like natural sugar sugar. right but it 
but at any hospital, it's the standard processed drink that, you know, they mass produce. Like a fruit punch or something silly. Right. But then you look at it and it's wild because they're going to bill your insurance, I don't know, like 800 bucks for that drink. They could tell you to go to the gas station and drink a cola, yeah, which is also terrible, for $2. Or they could go the natural route like my midwife would do with that test and have you drink like a green smoothie that has the sugar in it. Um, you know, with fruit. Yeah. But instead of that, that company that is then producing the sugar drink specifically for this test is selling it for like 800 to 2000 to your insurance. You know, it's like this crazy and you look at it, it's, it's a $2 test or that's all less probably because it's just sugar. Right. And so it's just, it's a wild and you start looking at things like that. Um, uh, for example, my partner, I am a, I'm a negative blood type. So I need to know if I want to get the Rogam shot to have future children. Um, and so, what is the shot? So if you have a negative blood type, they recommend a shot so that your body doesn't attack the baby. If the baby has a positive blood type oh. and normally your body doesn't have antibodies built up in it to do that. If you haven't had a child before. So normally it's a kind of an optional with the first child. They test the baby's blood when it's born. You can maybe do it after. What's it called? The what shot? Rogam. I think it's R-H-O-G-A-M. But um, it has a, you know, it has its whole list of side effects and it's usually actually like in the next few weeks of pregnancy for me. Um, But it's so funny. So I asked my partner, well, easy fix. Let's just get his blood type. And then we know if there's any chance that I need to potentially consider the shot or not. And so he had his insurance, you know, he called his doctor, explained why his insurance got billed and paid out $900 for him to get a blood test. to. T- and I'm just like, it does not cost. That's one of the simplest blood tests. If you were to go to a vet, just taking this to animal medicine to get your dog's blood it's type. All money. Cost- tops a hundred dollars and in reality it, the lab is you know the the work of that requirement is tops a 30 dollar test if and you so go just, donate blood they'll tell it to you for free right <laughs> <laughs> but i guess what they do when they sell your blood they sell your blood they, they're not donating it they're selling it to an insurance company for 800 to 1200 dollars and giving you a t-shirt or an ice cream or a sticker probably <laughs> and that's it a band-aid that will rip your skin off it's just a wildly you know absurd broken. market and i understand you know they overbill to offset for when people don't have insurance or when hospitals do lose money or when people do sue doctors so it's just it's broken on so many levels it's it's just really sad it is it's um yeah, it's just mind-boggling. I can't I can't even fathom it to be completely honest because I got um I mean, now I'm 8 months out, but I remember getting home from the hospital and I was only in the hospital for uh it ended up being so I gave birth at like 1 in the morning and then I spent a night. So I was in there for two nights technically. Um but the first night was giving birth the next night and then I was home because especially now with COVID they basically get you in and out, which was a huge blessing that I didn't have to spend more time there because it was eh, whatever. It was nice to be home. Um, right. But getting the bills once I got home, it 
and I have insurance. It just blew. Like I got one bill, just one bill. And I got multiples of these types for like $28,000, $28,000. And you had a fairly simple birth. Yeah. Like there was nothing complicated nothing happened. It's, and that's just one of the many, many bills that I, and I'm still like figuring it out because basically my insurance is fighting back. The hospital's fighting back. And then I'm stuck in the middle calling back and forth, back and forth and hoping that someone else will pay because it's the middle of a pandemic and I just had a baby and work is crazy and weird. And like, it's just, it's crazy. It's absurd. It's Completely. absolutely terrible. So I do think that definitely having a midwife and having now you've stopped going to the doctors and everything's pretty holistic from this point, it will probably be a much smoother um, path for you, I hope. Yeah, and I think like the upfront cost, the fact that insurances usually won't cover midwives, I think that is overwhelming to people. But I don't think a lot of people giving birth to their first kid realize that on the back end, you do get the bills and the insurance will not cover all of it. Yeah. Um, so they don't realize how expensive that cost can be. And that's, that's absurd. Yeah. It's insane. The wives I interviewed were between three and $5,000. Yeah. That's, that is amazing. Like postnatal care where they're coming to your house for like multiple days for, you know, multiple weeks. That includes like my midwife specifically covers care of my partner. So that's if awesome. my partner gets old, she considers that her responsibility and she would call in a prescription or a test or whatever for him because she doesn't want to risk me getting sick. That is amazing. You know, and, and so, like, I think it's a lot. It's overwhelming, and I come with a medical background, and I come with a, you know, a health background, but definitely advocating for women to try to educate themselves to navigate it as best as possible. A hundred percent. That's really hard. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's just so many different kind of places to navigate. It makes it pretty confusing on where to start or which direction to go or kind of, there's just so many different routes to take. Um, but I feel like we could talk about a lot of this for a lot longer. Um, I did want to ask you, what do you have going on? What, anything you want to share? Anything like this before we wrap up? I know that you have your podcast. Um, yeah. I know that like, so tell what's going on and I'll attach links and stuff like this to, um, for people to click through. Yeah. So my friend Alyssa and I started a podcast called coaches on the run because she is a phenomenally gifted runner, much better than I am. And, um, she's also a coach. And so we, you know, we formed this friendship, um, while she was doing this like world record attempt and we were talking back and forth and we've been acquaintances for years, but because I was a coach, you know, I was able to kind of give her some insights and thoughts and, we kept going back and forth and we just realized a big part of our friendship was we enjoyed discussing, obviously, you know, um, without sharing names or things, but situations that clients were in and kind of brainstorming ways to help them better or to coach them better, to encourage them better. And we realized that that was something we really enjoyed doing. And that because of the pandemic, that so many people that maybe wanted coaches or wanted running or fitness resources couldn't afford them um and so we we're like well why don't we do you know we had both thought about doing a podcast solo but she asked me and she's like do you want to just do a podcast together and i was like that's a great idea because then we could 
So that's kind of the theme of our podcast is we try to answer like commonly asked questions. Um, we take request questions. We bring on guests that we think either have intellectual value, either they're also coaches mm-hmm. or they have experiences that people would benefit or learn about, you know, in running um, from. And then occasionally we try to bring on people that we feel are doing important work within running as an industry, whether that's, you know, somebody that like we have like a scientist that helps develop shoes or we, you know, we bring on somebody that is an advocate for, you know, a cause, but they use running as their medium. So we'll occasionally bring on things, you know, that we just think might people might find of interest. But for the most part, the podcast is just about um, how to run better, healthier, safer, and um, answering anything that we think from our different perspectives and then other coaches' different perspectives of how to attack different situations so that people don't have to hire coaches. Yeah, that's awesome. Or feel lost when they go to do the Google and there's 8,000 opinions. Well, I think that running is tough because people don't realize that there is a form and there is a technique to it. Yeah, and I think people think, um, I actually posted a question that we wanted to do a podcast on and I wanted to just like in a couple different run like Facebook forums that were really big groups. And I got like attacked by this guy randomly. Of course, you know, when you put anything out on the internet, but he's like, well, nobody needs a run coach. That's the stupidest. There's a sucker out there for everything. And I'm like, well, I appreciate your opinion, but where, what have you used as resources then? Because a lot of people don't have resources or, you know, I've hired coaches. Um, I think it's great to learn from other people and when you can kind of give over that trust, mm-hmm. it's nice to not have to be feel so overwhelmed. It's just like, you know, having somebody you want to give birth with, you, you hire totally. a gynecologist or a midwife and you decide, Hey, this person has my best interest at heart. And hopefully they're more of an expert in the area than I am. So. <laughs> Well, it, it's interesting because it's like it only makes sense. Like you have a coach for, I don't know, personal training. You have a coach for weightlifting, for, you know, Olympic lifting, for for ballet, for whatever it is. Why wouldn't you have a run coach? Right. And for, for me, like most of my, like any of my clients, they, they also do strength training. And, you know, my, my undergrad was nutrition. So most of my clients I encourage to do nutrition programming um, mm. because I think it is, it's a holistic you don't just get up and go for a run every day if you're the average person and have zero issues forever. Right. That does happen. There's a few people out there that, you know, they get up and they go for a run every day and they never think about it and their body, you know, adapts and they don't ever have any injuries or issues or strength. They're, mm-hmm. And they're completely satisfied with their performance and speed. But that's not everyone. Most that's people rare, want to rare run. case avoid injury or, you know, also sleep better or, you know, whatever. So it's kind of fun to like problem solve for people, I guess. Absolutely. I agree. Um, so you have the, on the run, um, what else are you, what else is going on that I could, that we could share with whoever is viewing? So if you ever want to come to big Island, I do put on races. Um, so we have trail and ultra races, Right now we do about eight races a year. So I've kind of shuffled a few to have a few months off for um, birthing a child. Yeah. But um, like right now I'm actually in the process of a race that's staggered out. Um, 
for several days. So um, the go big and it's technically a new year's race, but I've staggered people's starts out over a 10 day period because of COVID to make sure that everyone can extremely social distance and um, feel really safe um, and still get to have like an activity in a race. And so this one specifically is a road race. We have two road races a year, um, one's in June and one's on New Year's. Um, but the rest are all trail, which has been the interesting learning curve, navigating trail permits or finding private landowners and then doing the physical labor of actually creating the trail myself or hiring people to do that. Yeah. And well, that's been a lot to take on, but I'm really, I really do want to build the run community here because they're, we have literally i think the best some of the best running in the world and i've traveled a lot of places to run um and i think you know we, we have the high elevation that you have in like flagstaff and boulder that all of these elite athletes flock to and mm-hmm. you know there's we have like some of the best you know trail running there but also for roads you know, you have hundreds of miles of like untapped land that people don't get to see and you know if they're doing a local 5k on pavement they might not venture out but by having the mm-hmm. option to do it in these unique places I'm seeing a community get built um most of our races this last year every entry like 80 percent of the people were doing their first trail race wow that's so cool what are your shortest and longest distances for the races you host so I do one in a winery here in my village that I live in twice a year, and we have a 5K. Um, I don't want to step on any of the race directors that do road races, really. So I've kind of not – I've kind of skipped the average distances, but I do – at the winery, I or my shortest, so I do like a 5K, a three-hour, and a six-hour, and mm-hmm. it's a loop course for that, so you can go as many loops as yeah. you want to go. Um, so that would be like your way of doing a half marathon or a marathon. Um, but other than that, it's pretty much all primarily ultras. So 50 Ks to hundred milers. And then this one that we have the 260 miler for new year's, which is around that entire Island. Wow. it's awesome. Yeah. But we, it's, um, I try to offer something in there for everybody, but I do try to trend towards keeping it more for ultras because I don't want take away from the income that the other race directors have Mm -hmm. Um, and all of our proceeds. So I don't profit from it. All of our proceeds go to Hawaii wildlife fund, which is a nonprofit um, that a friend of mine is the president of. And so I was able to kind of see their financials and um, they only have like two employees, neither are paid full time. Um, It's really honest, not nonprofit. And so everything goes back into either turtle rescue programs or beach cleanups. And it, so it's been fun to do these races as a way to raise money for them. Um, so like all of our proceeds go to them and that's, that's so incredible. Just, it's cool. Yeah. To try to get people to build a community, but also to use that to go back to them. So those are kind of my main two things other than coaching, which I've done online for. And you're doing, your coaching is a firepower coaching or is that? Yes, that was my, that was my like coaching name when I had several other coaches um, working for me. Right now I have a few coaches that work um, with me, but um, I've kind of taken it down in the last few years so that I am the primary coach. and, you know, then I have 
a trainer that does like strength programs for people if that's all they want or an, another nutritionist that I work with if you know somebody wants you know something super different or mm-hmm. um a different price package but cool. for the most part it's people are working directly with me so awesome um cool well I'm very very excited to see the um how your pregnancy ends up I'm sure it will be smooth seamless easy bounce back um it's you're honestly it's you're in for a treat. It's the whole thing is amazing and it's exactly what we're made for. And it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I'm so excited. And I'm excited to kind of follow your journey and see what's coming up for me and get like a little preview for life. It's funny because we were, um, after I had her, you know, the doc, the, or in your case, the midwife will give her to you or, you know, you'll pull her out or however it happens. And, I remember I was laying there and I got her and I looked at my husband and we're like, now what? Like it, it was just such a not, you know, you have this picturesque, oh, we're in love with this thing, this baby and goo goo gaga, you know, and it just, for us, it was just such a different kind of experience, maybe because of COVID and, you know, they're constantly taking your temperature and they took did the test and this and that. I don't know what it was, but it, it's been such an amazing process because you truly fall in love more and more each day. It's the most cheesy cliche thing ever. But once your baby is earthside, like it's cool to feel the kicks and it's cool to like, you know, this type of stuff. But once you actually meet him or him, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. like, it's just so surreal. I still can't believe it, I have a baby. It is wild. I um, We were recently gifted a bunch of stuff. Someone was leaving Island and, so I got like the bassinet I would have purchased like for free. So I just put it in my room, you know, and it's so crazy. I'll, I'll lay there at night right now. It's, it's, I'm looking at it. It houses like a couple extra pillows. I don't put on my bed when I make it, but I like roll over and I'm like, Oh wow. Like in a couple months, there's going to be a human in there, like another person. And it's, it's wild to think about. Um, it's really exciting. I'm just excited to meet him and see what kind of person he is. Um, You're in for a treat know him so hopefully he likes me as much as I'm sure I'll like him I'm sure even more but, uh, uh, thank you for having me course. I'm so excited to binge watch a bunch of your podcasts with interesting women so <laughs> I really well thank you for taking time I know that the time zone and it's a little difficult but um I'm very very happy we got to chit chat and um hear more about your journey and what's going on over there and um Yeah, be in touch and um, stay well and be well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.